You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is an assistant professor of political science at Ohio State University and a political theorist whose research focuses on political, economic, and social inequality, particularly concerning the role of private power. Before coming to Ohio State, she was a Harper Fellow in the Society of Fellows at the University of Chicago and a postdoctoral scholar at the Stanford Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society. Holding a PhD from the Department of Government at Harvard University, her latest book is titled Private Virtues, Public Vice. Philanthropy and Democratic Equality. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Emma Saunders Hastings. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Well, firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. Sure. Well, I'm a political theorist, so I work on political theory and philosophy within a political science department. And so from my book, I'm evaluating philanthropy from that perspective, the perspective of political theory and political science. Okay, so I wanted to start where you start in the book, which is with the story of Lucius Annius Seneca. So can you tell us a bit about that anecdote? So I opened the book with a quote from Seneca, who wrote thousands of years ago now, among the numerous faults of those who pass their lives recklessly and without due reflection, I should say there is hardly anyone so hurtful to society as this, that we neither know how to bestow or how to receive a benefit. So throughout the book, I I looked at a range of historical perspectives on philanthropy, and part of what interests me about them is, I think it used to be the case that philanthropy was recognized as an important social and political practice, that giving and receiving benefits was treated as something important for how societies were organized and how members of political communities related to each other. I think that's a perspective that for a lot of the 20th century got a bit lost. Um, We stopped paying attention to philanthropy politically, treated it as a personal ethical matter. So I used Seneca along with many other political thinkers to try to recover a political perspective on philanthropy. Okay, so I, I think it's really interesting. Oh, um, yeah, so I, I wanted to get in a, a bit deeper into this idea of relational inequality. So you talk about how philanthropy can lead to unacceptable paternalistic situations where philanthropists try to dictate the behavior of their recipients. So can you explain this idea and maybe give us some examples of how this plays out? Sure. So maybe I'll start by distinguishing relational equality from distributive equality, uh, by which I mostly mean sort of inequalities and distributions of material goods, resources, and opportunities. And that's often what people are focused on when they're thinking about philanthropy and criticizing it. So examples of distributive inequality and the way it gets criticized in in philanthropic contexts would be things like the idea that rich people shouldn't have as much money as they do. There's background economic injustice that creates the opportunity for philanthropy in the first place. Uh, or again, that some of these goods that philanthropy provides are things that the state should be providing. So again, objectionable inequalities in the background. 
there's versions of this that are worries about dirty money or tainted money we've seen in criticisms of the Sackler family in recent years, or worries that philanthropy is being used to um, to legitimate inequality in other ways. So my focus is instead on the ways that philanthropy can constitute unequal relationships. And I look at two main ways it can do that. One, um, it can subvert democratic control. So it can subvert people's shared control over outcomes that affect them in common. And then second, as you mentioned, um, I'm looking at cases where philanthropy can constitute objectionably paternalistic relationships. So paternalism, as I understand it, means uh, trying to restrict, manipulate, influence someone uh, ostensibly for their own good. Um, This is often thought to be a disrespectful way of treating people, or at least of treating adults. That between equals, you should defer to somebody else's perception of what their good consists in. Now, often in political theory, concerns about paternalism uh, focus on coercion, uh, and especially paternalism by the state. So I'm interested in cases where uh, actors can paternalize simply through offering conditional gifts, that is, gifts that come with behavioral requirements or restrictions on how they can be used. I think that often this can result in um, objectionably unequal relationships, where in exchange for receiving a gift, people are required to consent to future restrictions on their behavior or conduct or on how the gift can be used. Okay, so I think it's interesting to think about this um, philanthropy situation from an economic standpoint as it relates to the idea of relational inequalities and paternalism. So if we assume that humans are utility maximizing, then philanthropy is no different than any other transaction. So for example, let's say I go to the restaurant and and choose to tip the waitress $1,000 but dictate that it can only be used for her son's education. To some people, that could look paternalistic, but that only holds true if we assume that I'm completely selfless in this transaction. The way an economist would see it, I am spending $1,000 to buy something that makes me happy. I could spend $1,000 on a vacation or the new iPhone, but paying for her child's education makes me happier than that, so I'm choosing to buy that instead. In the same way, the waitress only accepts the money if she is better off. I'm effectively offering to buy an intangible good from her, and she can reject it if she doesn't want to sell it. So from that perspective, philanthropy is just like every other market transaction. And as as I see it, then there's nothing paternalistic or even morally wrong about giving another person money and putting whatever conditions you'd like on it, as long as both parties consent, because they are both being made better off. So would you agree, and why or why not? So there's a few questions to unpack there. One is whether um, consensual transactions always result in both parties being better off and over what time frame. So one situation I worry about is where conditions that people consent to in the moment, because it really does represent their best option, uh, result in future restrictions on their freedom that they may reject and that may constrict their options in ways that they're unhappy with. So that would be my worry about um, whether it really makes people better off. I think the important point you make, though, is sometimes um, even gifts that come with elements of objectionable paternalism might really represent um, possible improvements in people's well-being. And so in general, the solution I recommend, even objectionable paternalism in the case of philanthropy, isn't that the states step in and block these kinds of transactions. I think in cases, especially where 
maybe it's because of the state that people lack adequate opportunities to pay for their own education, um, it, it would seem sort of doubly objectionable for the state to then say, well, you're not allowed to accept philanthropic gifts to help you do that. So, so I agree that sometimes these things might be worth permitting. But I think there's still a case for, for criticizing donors who impose those kinds of conditions on recipients simply because that's not the right way that um, equal equal citizens should be relating to each other, seeking to impose long-term conditions on each other's behavior. Okay. Um, let's say, for example, that my neighbor agrees to mow my lawn for $50. I'm giving him money with the condition that he has to mow my lawn. I'm giving him money to achieve my purpose, which is to get my lawn mowed. So I get something I want, and he gets something he wants. So would you view that as paternalistic? And if not, how is philanthropy with conditions built in any different? No, I wouldn't see what you've just described as paternalistic. And I think an important thread in classical political economy arguments in favor of markets is that there's something superior about markets in relational terms, that the motive of self-interest that underlies market transactions can, from a certain point of view, be superior to uh, some of the effects of philanthropy. So when Adam Smith says, not from the benevolence of the um, baker, the brewer, or the butcher that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. His point isn't just that the fact that they're not motivated by benevolence makes my access to my dinner more reliable, but it's good for me not to have to depend on other people's benevolence because that creates relationships where then I might feel obligated to act in sort of servile ways deferring to them. So I think there's a sort of egalitarian vindication of market that doesn't necessarily apply in the same way to the kinds of relationships we see playing out in philanthropy. So I guess maybe where I'm disagreeing with you is in saying that it's not just like any other market transaction, that after a market transaction, the expectation is usually that the participants are then free to go do what they want with the proceeds of the transaction. Uh, that's not applied in the same way in philanthropy, at least in all cases. You have the state who will step in and enforce conditions on gifts. Okay, um, but then as compared to the the alternative where, I mean, such gifts would would never have occurred in the first place, right? Um, so if, I mean, I, I'm choosing to, to donate my money to some cause, I'm, I'm sort of a big philanthropist, and the condition on my gift is that, well, I'm not going to give this gift unless this condition is fulfilled. And now the the other person has a choice, right? Do they then fulfill this condition or do they choose to fore, forego the gift? Um, and so if one situation is better than the other, then, I mean, where 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 do we draw the line then? Do we not, does that transaction never take place? Does the gift never take place? Um, do we have some sort of restriction on that? How How do we get around that? I see what you're saying. So I think that our targeted intervention should be the kinds of options that are open to people. So I agree that sort of in the moment, stepping in and blocking transactions people are trying to use to improve their situation um, looks like an unattractive way of solving the problem. But I think that there are other ways of trying to reduce donor paternalism. So that could involve not... Um, not extending tax incentives for conditioned gifts or gifts that come with these kinds of restrictions, that is creating financial incentives against trying to exercise paternalistic control over beneficiaries. Um, that could involve just 
public criticism of paternalism, trying to convince donors not to do this or convince recipient institutions with philanthropic gifts uh, to limit their clients' exposure to donor paternalism. So I think we have a much wider range of ways of trying to create a norm against paternalism uh, than just using coercive mechanisms to block it. Why? Why is relational inequality um, un, not or morally objectionable or even undesirable? I mean, we have all kinds of hierarchies in, in everyday society. I have control over my employees. My boss has control over me. Um, you know, the government officials have control over different parts of society. We have all sorts of different relational inequalities with different, you mean, relationships that could be characterized as paternalistic in, in nature. Um, so why? Why is you know, philanthropy, what, why, why does philanthropy that can, um, creates relational inequality, why is that undesirable? So that's a big question that I try to answer in the book. I agree that not all relational inequalities or not all inequalities um, are objectionable and that we're familiar with hierarchies or the idea that some people are better at some things than other people. That some people can legitimately exercise control over other people in cases. Um, but I think that there are, are two ways um, that philanthropy presents particular concerns. And it's not the only thing that does, but it's an important um, source of concern. So one, again, is in relation to democracy. We might think that other relational inequalities are more legitimate, are less of a concern, if in the background we have democratic institutions that give people some choice or say in the social arrangements that they live under, right? Um, this is why, for instance, it's often thought less objectionable if there are inequalities within religious institutions because people have the opportunity to enter and exit as they like. And so to the degree that there are inequalities there, ones that people have, have chosen to be a part of, right? Um, political inequalities are different, right? You don't get to, to opt in and out of them in the same way as you do civil society uh, associations. But philanthropy, in some cases, bleeds into political um, equality. Philanthropic influence over sectors like education can result in rich people choosing the kinds of social arrangements that other people live under, right? This is what I mean when I say it can subvert democratic control. And I think that that kind of political inequality plays a particular um, role in, um, sorry, raises a particular concern about relational inequality in ways that maybe lower level, more optional relational inequalities don't. Okay, but just from a moral standpoint, why should someone else um, have the ability to dictate the conditions that I put on my money? Um, I mean, it, it's just, just, thinking about it from a moral standpoint it's it's my money um it's the resources that i have the legal ability to allocate however i wish if i choose to to use that money for some purpose um and the other person um agrees to that with no co coercion involved um then shouldn't that be you know viewed as something that will you know from the same same perspective make everyone better off i mean just just thinking about it from the same sort of lens that i mentioned earlier we why why view philanthropy as being um you know the product of benevolence instead of the same thing as being motivated by self-interest well i agree it can be motivated by self-interest maybe we we disagree a little bit 
in the sort of um, premise about motivations, I think it often is uh, genuinely altruistic. Um, so in this case, maybe you're sometimes a little bit more critical of the donors than I am, which is interesting. Um, I think your question sort of rolls together two issues. One is um, how should philanthropy be regulated? And another is how should it be evaluated and judged, right? Even if we were to decide, all right, we're going to permit um, these transactions, these conditional gifts, there would still remain a question of how should we judge them normatively, right? And so paternalism could be a problem, even if we think the right response to it isn't uh, limiting it through government. I think that there are other reasons for thinking that it's not just a question of how you use your money uh, in the case of philanthropy, because it often does involve public institutions, public actors, um, or bureaucrats who are being influenced by these gifts. So there, there's a clear stake for other people in what your money is doing. Uh, but even imagining we're just talking about a private transaction, sort of individual to individual, as in some of the examples that you've been using, as long as it's going to be um, government actors that come in and enforce the conditions on the gift or roll back the gift if the person doesn't meet the conditions, I think, again, the public is involved and has a right to decide what kinds of paternalistic conditions it's going to permit. And that's to say nothing of the tax incentives that sometimes flow to philanthropy um, and that might constitute a further argument for some kind of public role in deciding the extent of legitimate control that you can exercise in that way. Okay, um, so I did want to talk about um, sort of the situations that you also talk about in the book where people are beneficiaries of some entity that agrees to the conditions of the philanthropist and therefore are indirectly subject to some kind of paternalism. So again, I'd argue that as long as there is no coercion, um, there's very little ground to see any moral, ethical, or practical harm. So you mentioned an example in the past where um, Charlie Munger gave $200 million to build student dorms at UCSB and mandated that they would be small, windowless dorms with big communal spaces to force people to socialize. So even though the agreement was made between the university and Mr. Munger, there is no coercion. Students don't have to go to UCSB, and if they do, they don't have to live on campus, and even if they do that, they don't have to pick that building. The only situation where a student chooses that particular dorm is if that, that is the absolute best-case scenario for them. If UCSB didn't accept the conditions, there would be no, con no donation, and therefore no building, and every student in the dorms would be made worse off, not to mention that Mr. Munger would not be able to maximize his own utility. It's a lose-lose situation. So with that said, um, I wanted to ask about indirect beneficiaries and why you view conditions on them as being morally concerning, not from a legal standpoint, but just from a normative standpoint, as being morally concerning, especially when there is no coercion. Well, I guess the simple answer is that I don't think coercion is the only thing that can make something objectionable. Right? Um, all right, so take a different example that's not um, involving money and philanthropy. Imagine um, people deciding whether they want to get married. Right? And suppose a woman is in a position where uh, the person she would like to marry maybe genuinely regards it as, as her best option, will only agree to get married if she agrees to an inegalitarian relationship, right? one in which he makes all the decisions, uh, she does the housework, doesn't work, um, whatever sort of 
patriarchal conditions you like to imagine. So you could imagine her consenting into this relationship. So there's no coercion involved. But I would still want to say that those are objectionable terms on which a relationship could be managed. Right? So we're not yet imagining the intermediary case, which is just to motivate the thought that even without coercion, you could have an objectionably inegalitarian relationship. So maybe you disagree. I'm interested to hear what the economic perspective makes of that. Yeah, um, the, the, the sort of uh, argument to that would be, well, then if, say, that woman didn't agree to that, that relationship, then her other alternative is, is worse than that, right? Um, because that is her best option. So at the end of the day, um, by not accepting that relationship or had that relationship have never taken place or had that condition never been applied um, and that relationship would have never taken place, then both parties would be made worse off. And so in the end, there would, you know, sort of be this, this dead weight loss, um, basically, of, of utility. So that's that's sort of where um, I, w- I would get at um, where, when looking at that condition. So that, that wouldn't seem objectionable to me just because, well, that that is the best scenario for her, right? Um, if we want, if and, we are concerned about her well-being, then the best possible scenario for her would be if she chose to accept that relationship. And if we're concerned about her well-being and the well-being of people like her, should we also refrain from criticizing men who impose these kinds of conditions in order to get married? Not at all, because there are like no, there, there's no coercion. I, I mean, I would understand if there is. Um, some sort of, you know, situation like, you know, in Afghanistan going on where um, the, the women have no choice, they're being forcefully married against their will. Um, but in this case, the, the women are, are free to, to reject that, that sort of condition. Um, so, you know, I can, I can ask anybody to do anything I want. It doesn't, it, it, there's no moral objections on my part, um, as long as the other person has the right to say no. Well, you say free to choose the other option how free might depend on how good we think the alternative options are. I assume that's what you mean when you refer to the Afghanistan case, right? That past a certain point, the choice would become less meaningful. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I, I mean, there's, there's a big difference between the, the sort of coercion and the forceful sense um, where someone is being forcefully married against their will um, or forced into a relationship against their will um, physically forced, um, and another situation where you know the person can say, "Okay, no, thank you," walk away, and try and pursue their other options. I mean, you never know what. I think in the real world, it's not always as straightforward as saying, "Well, this is their one best option," and they're never going to f- find a different option that's better than that. Um, oftentimes, you'll have you you can't say what their options in the future might look like, and so uh, if you do think that this is not the right. Um, relationship for you, then you walk away and say, um, "Okay, well, I I can uh, with with the hope that saying that I think there is a chance that I can do better than this. I think that chance is good enough for me to pass up this opportunity." And there's nothing wrong with uh, the person in the position of more power or choice trying. How to how does that person have more power or more choice? They're simply offering up the relationship. They have no power. So Charlie Munger has no power? No, not at all. Um, UCSB can say, no, no, thank you. We don't want this donation, right? So if I, if I go, it's the same thing as if I go to the store and say, hey, can I buy that, um, you know, can I buy that product for half, half the price? And the store clerk can say, no, I don't want to accept half the price for this. Um, if the store clerk believes that, um, you know, 
that no one else is going to buy it for more than that, then the store clerk can say, um, yeah, okay, um, you know, you can, you can have it for half the price. But if they believe that someone else is going to go in and, and pay more than that for it, they can say, nope, uh, I don't want to accept your offer. So if I go into a store and say, can I have that for 50% off? Do I, am I in a position of power because I have the money? Right. So I guess another place where we differ is I think that there can be exercises of power that are reasonably subject to political scrutiny and criticism, even if they don't amount to coercion. That is, even if someone has an alternative to acceptance. Okay. Um, and so what would that look like? Can you give us an example? Um, well, my students, for instance, aren't required to take my classes. Uh, they can leave if I don't like the way that I run my classes. But it still seems to me that there are lots of ways that as a professor, I could exercise my power in the classroom in objectionable ways. That is, in ways that um, use the fact that they need to get a good grade from me to get them to assent to my political views. Okay. Um, yeah. So next I wanted to, to ask about sort of your alternative then, um, which is that um, democracy is superior to philanthropy as a way of addressing society's needs. You talk about how philanthropists should work with the government and that public entitlement programs are, are preferable to private charity. So can you tell us a bit more about these alternatives and, and how you would see them playing out in sort of an ideal world? So maybe just a small correction. I think um, the language of philanthropists working with the government as a recommendation, I, I don't think is in the book. In fact, one of the concerns I have is the way that philanthropy and government sometimes do work together in ways that increase the political concerns. That is when philanthropists are directly influencing elected officials or, or public officials. So I think that some of the democratic concerns could be mitigated by, by having more separation there rather than a tighter connection. Um, but to the, to the broader point, so I think when I say that democracy is superior to philanthropy as a, as a way of meeting needs, I don't necessarily mean all needs, right? Presumably human needs and desires are sort of infinite. And so um, there are always going to be some things that might be provided on a voluntary basis, if not through market. But I think there are core kinds of public goods where there's an expectation of equal control by citizens over them um, and that philanthropic influence could threaten that. So education is a key example I use at several stages in the book here. I think public education um, is an area where philanthropic influence is objectionable to the extent that donors get the power to determine whether people's children are going to school in ways that bypass attempts to seek legitimacy from the public. Um, and then there's a range of approaches we could use to try to reduce that. Obviously, public institutions by themselves in existing societies, not perfectly democratic. They don't give people fully equal control over the outcomes that affect them. And so while on the one hand, we might want to strengthen public democratic institutions, I think that there can also be room for philanthropy, but there I'm interested in the kinds of terms on which it's arranged. Are we talking about philanthropy that gives a very small number of rich donors control over other people? Or are there ways of imagining a more democratic philanthropy that would give 
people more directly affected the opportunity to shape the outcomes they care about. Okay. Um, and so, I mean, there, there's a couple of different different things that that sort of would, would encapsulate then um, in terms of the, the role of, of this as, as it um, pertains to, to public policy. So there's, I think there's two different things here. Um, one is the way we judge philanthropy. One is the way we, we view it and, um, you know, for, from a moral standpoint, evaluate it. Um, and then there's, I mean, what, what we do about it from a policy standpoint. So I think one thing that you mentioned was that um, we could reduce tax incentives for, or, or eliminate tax incentives for conditional gifts. Um, are there are there any other policy suggestions that you would um, that you would suggest as well? So I do think that in some sectors, um, reducing philanthropy full stop, um, or at, at the very least, allowing it only as a supplement to public provision could be important. So. I think the cases that are a particular worry are ones where philanthropy isn't just providing people with an additional option that they can access if they choose, as in the kinds of cases you've mentioned, uh, but where it changes the unique option that's provided in some area. Um, so one case I mentioned in the book that I worry about is uh, Catholic hospitals, which, because of charitable choice laws in the U.S., um, can be sort of government-funded and um in preference to public hospitals or that public resources will be directed elsewhere, treated as adequate hospital access in an area, um, but that don't provide the full range of services uh, that a public hospital would. So women's health services, um, services for sexually transmitted infections, for instance. Um, so in that case, it's not just that we've built a new hospital and, and people who would prefer that kind of service can go there. It's that what might otherwise have been available to me as a resident in some area isn't, and instead I get um, something that's nonprofit operated, but on different terms that I don't have any say over. So I think that for really important public services like education and health, uh, there needs to be a, a strong democratic option that people are able to exercise control over. All right. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.